Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Jamie Don, And I'm Heather Strong-Moore. This week, there was just too much to cover in talking about Taylor Swift for only one episode. So this is a second release, deluxe episode, bonus content from the vault. In our first episode, we didn't get to dig into the significance of Taylor's re-recorded albums and the cultural impact they've had or the phenomenon that has been the Eras Tour. So today we're digging into all the extra material that didn't make the first episode and discussing what Taylor has to teach the church about creating meaningful online engagement and communal experiences. Let's dig in. So as we said, today we are wanting to delve even further into the community that Taylor Swift has created around her. And last week, I I had a wonderful time talking some about the, (laughs) I had a marvelous time ruining everything. Um, I had a wonderful time talking about how patriarchy reacts to Taylor. And this week we wanna dig further into what really has made her such a phenomenon. And in doing so, we want to highlight as much as possible the things that women offer and the things that bring that women bring to the table because Taylor Swift is very savvy. She's very business oriented. I genuinely think she's a marketing genius. Jamie's going to talk about that later. So she has plenty of what we would call hard skills in the workforce, but also she abounds in what the workforce, I think patronizingly calls soft skills, which are things that are harder to measure. It's usually around emotional intelligence around being able to read other people, being able to make other people feel valued. And those are things that typically as a society, and especially in the corporate setting, we don't really see as being valuable or important or crucial. And what's so interesting about how Taylor has gotten to where she is in this moment is that she certainly has plenty of hard skills, but it's really the soft skills that she uses with such aptitude that have created a major industry around her. And so we want to talk more about how she's done that and being able to then highlight how are women as a result also undervalued in society, in the workplace, and how can we value what women bring to the table, what we ourselves bring to the table more, and what also, as we said, what the church can learn from that. Yeah, I think that was a great way of putting it, Heather. And I love even today there were new articles um, kind of as the years wrapping up, we're seeing more and more people realizing, wow, she really had an incredible impact this year. And I was just reading a glimpse of one of them around her as one of the most intriguing people of the year. And I loved hearing the way that people were talking about, like, it's very intriguing. The fact that this woman has such a platform and also makes people feel very known both the people who actually do really know her and the people who listen to her music and show up to her shows and all these things are I think really like you said undervalued and yet it is the reason that she is now a billionaire and so we see the fact that it actually is quite valuable both um in finances but also just in the way that people experience um her work Yes, that's a major theme. I think that will be re-recurring 
recurring today is this actually can make a ton of money. If that's your only aim in a capitalist society is to make a bunch of money, then hard skills are not the only way to do that. Actually, <laughs> Taylor Swift has shown us that just being a genuine caring person is a billion dollar industry. So uh, we want to just take a minute to give you a quick rundown for people who are still very new to Taylor Swift, who haven't really been paying that much attention. You may have small children at home and you just don't have that much time. That's okay. Whatever, whatever season of life you're in. If you're someone who's like, I know Taylor Swift is a thing. I know she's had a big deal. Like she's had a big year, but I couldn't really tell you why or how. We're going to give you a few quick stats about the true extent of her accomplishments over her career, but this year alone. So first of all, Taylor Swift now has 10 full-length studio albums. That's pretty unbelievable. There are many artists who don't even get close to 10 full-length albums. So that in and of itself is a huge accomplishment. The first um, six of those albums, no, the first five, sorry. Gosh, now I'm not, the first five were on her- six. The first six. Okay, there we go. Girl math. Six. <laughs> So I was like, we have four re-records out. Anyway, um, the first six were on her first label, Big Machine Records. I hate to even speak their name, but <laughs> we're going to talk about them more later. But um, then her latest four have been on another label that gave her a very different contract. So, but she has four full, 10, sorry, wow, 10, there we go, full length studio albums, four of her first albums have been re-recorded already. We're going to have a whole segment about that. She is projected to have, by the end, the highest grossing tour of all time with the Eras Tour this year and next year. Shout out to Beyonce, who is neck and neck with her. So they have both just had a tremendous year. Beyonce has had the highest grossing individual shows of all time, which is incredible. And Beyonce already finished her tour. So yeah, both of them just had tremendous tremendous years. As of today, when we are recording this, Taylor Swift is officially a billionaire, <laughs> um, as reported by Forbes, which is wild. And again, that's even before she's finished her tour. And we want to pause and talk about that for a second, because so much of what has contributed to her financial success is her music. Many celebrities have, especially many musicians, have their music and then they have an additional brand could be a clothing brand or a makeup brand or a liquor brand liquor is the market is very saturated on liquor if you're a celebrity listening to this maybe don't start a liquor brand there's a lot out there <laughs> for all of our celebrity listeners yes of which we Hot assume tips. there are many <laughs> um but what's fascinating about taylor is her net worth is based solely on her music and I think that's so compelling that it's perfectly fine for people to have multiple things that they're invested in. So that's in no way diminishing what other people have accomplished through having multiple brands. It does just seem unique that for her, she just said from day one, the music is the brand, the art is the brand, and that she's just really doubled down on the value of her art and her art having value and what she creates having value. And that in and of itself is now a major part of her personal brand. And so we want to highlight that, that she has made a billion dollars, is worth a billion dollars 
on the value of her art and the way that she has said, my art is the main thing. Yes, I generally feel very strongly about billionaires and yet Taylor Swift seems to be recreating the paradigm that you can actually be perhaps an ethical millionaire billionaire rather um my brain can barely comprehend it um so I I do think it's quite compelling and pretty pretty wild to see the fact that a woman um in her mid-30s is a billionaire based on her art and then we also have um Midnight's her latest studio album her hmm this is so difficult to say because she re-released a re-record wow it's so hard to talk about um Midnight's listen to it uh was in the Billboard top 10 for a full year Taylor is also the only living artist to chart five albums in the Billboard Top 10 simultaneously, which, incredible. Prince is the only other person to have done that, and it was um, after Prince's death. So um, pretty incredible to have that be while she's still living and thriving. She gave her entire tour crew hundred thousand dollar bonuses at the end of the american leg just like we're not talking her background dancers or the people who are like most visible these are people who drove the trucks and set up and things like that like very intentional choice to um kind of go what we would consider above and beyond i actually have to add there's this now kind of famous clip of her I believe she's talking to Jimmy Fallon no Letterman maybe uh one of the late night hosts and talking about like a background dancer and they kind of you know passively say well yeah because a background dancer like they don't have health insurance and she looks at him and she's like well mine do and I love it they're like oh okay (laughs) and so you just kind of get this full picture of Taylor of like she is trying to figure out what it looks like to do this with kind of her soul still intact and to do this in a way that cares for the people around her. Um, not just like by being nice and smiling at them, but by caring in ways that uh, really are honoring to them. She also recognized, you know, as much as she was investing in the economy of cities that she was going to uh she also was putting a burden on cities and stuff like that and so as a result kind of decided she was going to invest in every city that she visited and donated tens of thousands of dollars to food banks in every city that she visited um i know in pittsburgh she donated so significantly that um in and of themselves, like the food banks were just like, let's share this because it it only makes sense that she chose maybe the one that was the best known, but they sh- they know the other ones. And so it was so significant that they were able to share the, the gift with others. So all that to say, very significant. And we 
if you are someone who's like, I don't get it. Why is she all over the place? Especially as, you know, all the end of year wrap ups are coming. Um, I hope that you are able to say whether or not I understand, you know, the appeal myself of her music that you are able to say there is something here that's pretty significant and worth paying attention to. Absolutely. Yeah. And so much of what we'll continue to talk about in this episode about Taylor is that her strength is her ability to care for other people and to do that in a way that's really tangible and makes people feel cared for. And how incredible that she's gave millions of dollars of her own revenue from the tour to every member of the crew. And that, that, that was deserved. I mean, this, the highest grossing tour of all time. And there's so many people involved in making that happen who spend time away from their families. That is grueling work to be on the road for months at a time. You, if you're driving truck, if you're part of the setup crew, you go ahead of the, to the next city you're setting up. They have two sets at any given time. And you're kind of yo-yoing essentially like ahead of each other. You're already setting up the next city as the other one is happening. And that's just so much work. And so normally would be thankless work that you're just behind the scenes, cleaning up after everybody, not a fun job. Um, And so for her to really recognize, hey, maybe I'm the headliner, maybe my name is the one that's getting people in here, but that's meaningless if there isn't a show to put on. And for her to just give so much appreciation to the people who work for her, like you said, Jamie, she's the one billionaire that we don't want to eat. Um, <laughs> we There may be some rich that we want to eat, but not Taylor Swift. She, she can stay. <laughs> what I, I think is really interesting, and this is perhaps its own um, podcast, which we did actually with Caitlin Beatty, but um, what's interesting to me is that what we see trending in the church is this kind of lore of celebrity and the fact that it actually is really degrading people's souls and causing them to harm the people around them. Most people, you will be hard pressed to find a celebrity Christian and the Lord just keeps purifying his church by revealing these things and bring them into the light. But There's very few, if any, uh, celebrity pastors, if you can call them that, um, that do not also have a history of being horrible to the people around them. And to me, it's very interesting that we have someone who is a celebrity. The thing that like pastors are kind of in some ways like megachurch wants to be like. And in the process, they are losing their souls. And she is being so intentional to say, I'm going to keep like being kind to the people around me. I'm going to keep creating opportunities for them. I'm going to keep sharing this platform that I'm given. And it seems to be that Christian leaders, when they start to get celebrity, actually narrow that. Whereas like what we can learn from Taylor Swift is that there's room at the table. Like she is sharing her wealth. She's sharing her platform. She is trying to think about, um, you know, actually one of the things that I was reading in this intriguing people um, 
article is people saying, I've never seen someone wait on Taylor. Like she, I stayed with her and she made us breakfast and things like that. And to me, we actually, when things come into the light about Christian leaders, we often hear the opposite that like they start demanding things of people and they start basically saying like, you need to wait on me and serve me in this particular way. And so um, I just say that to say, like, I, I think there's something very intriguing about that to me, that the higher she gets, the more she is actually seems to be at least intentional to say, I'm not going to let this erode my soul. And there's something to learn from that for anyone who has like any bit of platform, I think. That's so good, Jamie. That's so good. And I think that's a perfect segue for us in our for our ongoing conversation. So we want to now talk about the way that she has grown her fan base and how that has led to her re-recordings. And this is, again, the soft skills that people really underestimate. And why I think it's such a good transition from what you're talking about, Jamie, is because Taylor Swift has been so good at staying close to her fans in any way that she can. That has been a priority of hers from the beginning is to stay close to the fan experience and the people who support her. And a lot of that now, because of the level that she's at, has to be digital. It has to be virtual, but she is so active online. And I think she is such a unique person. This is, again, part of why there are college classes about her is that she came of age. She was the perfect age for social media when her career started. Taylor's about to be 33. And so she was a teenager when YouTube started, when Facebook, and then especially Instagram started. And she has just had an incredible natural intuition for social media in ways that, again, are stunning. Like you could have marketing classes about that. And she just continues to evolve. Like now she's does the same thing with TikTok, but she was the exact right age to harness social media where she was the target audience as a teenager and so she understood it. Her fans were on it as well. And she used social media to make people feel connected to her. She would post videos of herself, her family, her friends. There was a funny video that I remember from very early on where she was just in a store, like in the mall and snuck up and surprised her dad and scared her dad. <laughs> She like put that on YouTube, like, you know, or again, early days of the platform, but it just made you feel like, lol, like that's something you and your friends would do and that you would see your friend post a video like that. And so she's always just been this wizard at allowing herself to be normal in the public eye and doing that in a way that makes other people feel like she's relatable and she's like them. And she has devoted a ton of time to being online to engage with fans. So from early days of Tumblr, I mean, shout out to some, I know some of our listeners were Tumblr girlies in high school <laughs> in like the 2000s and 2010s. And Taylor would interact with people's posts. She would be very engaged. I just saw a social media post this past week of someone saying, you guys don't even remember the reputation to her. She would get off stage and she would be liking our Tumblr posts about the show. And that's not all that long ago. And so she just spends a lot of time engaging with fans, hearing what fans are talking about, hearing what songs they're connecting with, 
hearing just the things that they're sharing personally about the struggles that they have for with their mental health, with their physical health, the way that the songs are connecting with them and giving them a sense of just being known and feeling encouraged by her music. And I think that's so key and takes a lot of time and a lot of just genuine interest and humility. And again, what I think Taylor has done that's so remarkable is that she knows wherever she goes, it's going to be a big deal. Anything that she does at all is going to be a big deal. So whether it's showing up somewhere in person or liking someone's post, commenting on someone's post, et cetera. And she has chosen to have a real spirit of generosity about her presence. And she doesn't say, okay, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be the center of attention on purpose so that I feel like a big shot. She says, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be the center of attention because that's inevitable. And I want to be strategic about that to do it in ways that make other people feel special because I'm there and to make other people feel special because I'm paying attention to them. And that's such a beautiful way to steward your fame and celebrity to realize I can make people feel cared for and loved and really valuable. And so I'm going to use my fame to do that, not just to be self-serving. Yeah, I think one of my favorite examples of that actually is her using choreography from a TikTok video in her tour. And it's not the most complex choreography, but it really caught on and everyone was doing it and it's fun. And for her to have that connection with people and say like, yeah, you actually just really were one of the first people to say like, I love this song. I want to do something with it. And so for her to use that, I think is really special and just shows, um, like you said, this real generosity of like, I'm going to celebrate what someone has done here. And I think the church today is still wrestling with what do we do with online spaces? What does it look like for the church to function in a digital age? I don't think we figure that out and that's okay. Like that it's always evolving and that's fine. And of course the pandemic changed a lot of things as well. But I just think there's so much that we could observe from her of how is she connecting with people online in a way that's also leading to in-person connections. I think that's something that is incredible that she's done. It's not only this isolated, you only are engaged online and that's the only thing that you have. And it is actually to be highly online is pulling you away from in-person. I think that's a fear that churches have. And that's a reasonable fear that is happening in plenty of pockets of the internet. But what Taylor does is that she engages with people online in ways that then propel them towards real human connection. That's incredible. That's the goal (laughs) for us as Christians for the church is that we are in the spaces where people are, which is the digital space, and that we can resonate with people. We can create content. We can engage with other people's content that they've created around scripture, around their faith, around their connection with other Christians. And to do that in a way that then makes people feel more energized about being in church, about being part of a Bible study, about reaching out to a friend about what they're learning. That is an incredible opportunity. That's an incredible possibility. And I know for, for our friend group, Taylor Swift is something that makes us connect more with each other. 
for us being online and observing content about Taylor or created by her, yeah, we're online and we're doing that, but then we want to talk to our friends about it and we want to share with other people and then we want to go have shared experiences. And that is, I think, such a beautiful balance that the church has yet to achieve, but that I think there's a lot that we can draw from that and a lot of goals that we can move towards. Yeah, I think you said that so well, Heather, because I do think that's kind of where, um, again, kind of similar to that same way of like celebrity in the church has actually eroded our soul. We have yet to figure out what it looks like for us to engage with people online in a way that actually encourages and enhances our in-person relationships. And I think that's something that is so key and important to what relationship really is. And so, and I think honestly, that's part of why I, I like sometimes cringe at Christians talking about that because it has not encouraged real life spaces and it actually has taken people out of their, their real life. And so for us to think about what does it look like to do things that encourage our real relationships and propel us into deeper faithfulness in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And so over time, this cumulative investment of tailors in the online space and then translating that into real life communities has really resulted in the growth of her fan base. So also, if y'all are like, how come Taylor Swift is all of a sudden just everywhere this year, there has been a genuine spike in the size of her fan base. So you're not crazy. (laughs) If you're like, have I been missing something? (laughs) A lot of that is from on just the growth of online platforms. I think TikTok has been a major impact, has had a major impact on her popularity and on the fan base for sure with the Eras tour, which we're going to talk about in this episode. And also in general, when it comes to fans just sharing things about different songs, about lyrics that they're connecting with, about spec- endless speculations about hints and Easter eggs and stuff that she's putting out there. The digital space has, I think, really elevated and expanded the possibility for how people can connect. And again, that they're finding community with others in ways that wasn't wouldn't have been an option 15 years ago. And so the fan base has truly expanded both through the digital space and also because as her catalog is growing, as she's been continuing to put out albums, she has always had tremendous attention to songwriting and lyrics and writing songs that reflect her personal experience, both as we talked about in the last episode, sometimes about specific dating relationships where it was fairly easy to figure out who she was talking about. But she's also always been really skilled at writing about things that are so personal that they also become universal. That they, when it's personal to you and your human lived experience, that can transcend to just be human in general. And so her attention to something to being deeply resonant has allowed her her songs and her lyrics to just gain connection, to gain popularity, to 
reach a wider number of people because again, she's prioritized her art. She has kept the art, the center of it and making art that is personal and relatable. And as she's had more albums and as they reflect her growing life as well, you know, as she moved through her twenties, as she's now in her early thirties, she has more and more things to write about more and more just maturity and introspection. And then the breadth of her catalog has allowed more people to connect with her through her art and through the ways that she makes people feel like they're part of something. Yeah. I, one of my favorite examples of that actually is her writing welcome to New York and the conversation around that of like her moving to a new city and just as someone who cares deeply about the places that I live. Um, I think it's really beautiful that she wrote a song about moving about like loving this city having it be kind of this dream that she wanted and then actually doing it and even hearing her talk about that song after she wrote it and like the experience of you know living in New York and being like I'm gonna go to the store in the city and like have that kind of precious experience of loving where you live and having that be kind of this coming of age experience of like I'm moving I'm making this big decision and and again it's her writing about an experience that is not just a relationship though those are important but her writing about this experience of like it's so formative for you to make a big move and to have that be something that's really powerful and significant and so then this song that is both really fun and powerful and gets you know, used anytime someone talks about New York, but it's also about an experience of, I moved somewhere. That was a big decision for my life. And it formed me and shaped me and changed how I experienced the world. And anyone who has had a big move can relate to that reality of like, oh, wow, I moved somewhere. It feels really powerful. It makes me feel small. It makes me feel all these things. And that's like one song. Yeah, such a good point. Such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, do you have some additional comments about her just kind of business savvy and what she brings there? Yeah, we're going to get a little bit more into the um, Taylor's version. But I think just in general, I would say like she is a genius. And I particularly if you have paid attention to her lyrics, I think it's easy to forget that she's not traditionally educated, uh, that she like didn't have the same experience of many people going off to college in her uh, late teens and early 20s. And to me, um, as someone who values the college experience and education, I have had several experiences in my life that have like helped me appreciate people who have other kinds of uh, genius. But I think for me to see someone who has said, I really just want to take my life and my work seriously. And to me, there's something about the fact that like, she really is a business genius and never went to like Harvard Business School is I think very powerful. And again, like all these quote unquote soft skills are the things that kind of propel her business genius and don't make her soft at all, actually. Like it actually is what makes her very wise, very shrewd, 
and works like it works. And so, um, yeah, I just think there's something about the fact that she is not traditionally educated, that there's something about that that should challenge us and say, I, I can't be an elitist about certain things and I can't, um, value one type of education over one's life experience in some ways. And I think there's something really good and challenging about that. Um, and I think this is a good time for us to talk about her re-records. Uh, if you aren't aware in a very big scandal, um, which I actually say as if it's something light, she actually, it's very, the fruit of patriarchy and very disturbing actually that her, the rights to her work were sold without her ever being talked to about it. And so her first six albums were sold at a very high value and yet not, she has now already surpassed that in her four out of six re-records. But um, she kind of went through this moment of like, my work is no longer mine. And as an artist, what that would mean. And I'm sure that there were like other conversations bigger than this. But she, I think maybe this year is when we learned that Kelly Clarkson is the first person who kind of said, what if you just re-recorded them and owned them yourself? And Taylor, I love that she does this, apparently sends flowers and a thank you note to her with every re-record. And what a beautiful gesture to say, like, you're the one who sent me on this trajectory. And again, I'm sure there were like other conversations behind the scenes that we'll never know about. But to me, I think that's really beautiful that she remembers who was the catalyst for her and honors that with every single one. And so she has decided to re-record her work. And so if you ever see Taylor's version next to some of her work, that is her saying that she now owns that work. And so her First six albums are the ones that she is re-recording. She has completed four of those. And we are all waiting on bated breath for the next announcement. And if you are a Swifty, you know that um, you may have been down a rabbit hole or two in the last few weeks around that. Um, but to me, I think there's something really powerful too about the fact that when she has re-recorded them, she she didn't call them like, a re-record she didn't call them like take two or version two or something like that she was very clear on like I own these now and I'm gonna name them after myself and I think there's something very beautiful about that for women to take to heart we are taught really specifically as women to deflect any credit that we are given and to not be seen as like haughty about that or to really take any ownership of our work at all and she is modeling for us what it looks like to say, actually, I did do this and I should own this. And this is my work and you will know it. And I'm going to call it Taylor's version to be really clear on that, that I 
own this now. And this is the fruit of my life. And I think it's a model for us of what it looks like to say, I'm, I'm not going to be falsely humble about this. This is rightfully mine. I value it. And I understand that it has value. And so I'm going to say, this is, this is mine. And to unashamedly say that about ourselves and the things that we put our hands to. Yeah, that's so powerful, Jamie. That's so good. And for her to say, I'm not going to let men profit off of my work, <laughs> which has happened for you know centuries for the contributions of women and absolutely as well for communities of color that the people who create are often the people that don't get paid for what is produced. Um, and so for her to say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not letting men profit off of my work, especially when she signed a record deal as a teenager in Nashville an, an unknown at the time, you know, it's at the time it was a big risk for them to sign her. And it's pretty normative in the music industry for music contracts to be pretty exploitative. And you actually rarely own your masters. And thankfully that is changing quite significantly. I think partly through Taylor's influence and just others in the industry as well of you shouldn't be able to own your original masters. You should be able to own your work. I hate that her record company, they talked a big game afterwards of like, no, we gave Taylor the chance to get her masters and she didn't want to. The deal that they offered her was she could get her original six back if she recorded six more. So they tried to lock her into a 12 album deal in order to own her work. And for, for her as someone who puts great value into her art to walk away from her original masters was I'm sure deeply painful. And she has expressed that and talked about that. And also that she was like, I'm just not going to keep participating in a system of exploitation and greed. And at that point, she was big enough that she could sign with a new label that would let her own her work and re-record her previous work as well. So yeah, I just love that she's like owning her work and allowing women and everybody to see the value of that and making that normalized, which again is like very pro-labor. <laughs> Um, and her, it's resulting in wealth for her, but in a way that does feel warranted and in a way that actually opens up avenue of wealth for, for other, for many other people as well in the future. I think it's important to name too, that she didn't know how that would go. Yeah. Like her first re-record, she could have taken a big L on that. Like that could have been a huge loss of resources kind of people like why would you do this and yet because she told the story well which I think again often credited as like a soft skill um I think people were like of course we want to support this and and then of course because she's a genius she added some things to it like these songs that are from the vault uh, that weren't a part of the original album, but she wrote at the time and they got cut and now we get to hear them and it's it's super fun. But I think for us to say she took a risk, she didn't know. I mean, when you say that out loud, I'm going to re-record an album that everyone has already heard. 
it actually makes no sense. And yet, because we get to see the evolution of an artist, we get to see um, a woman who is saying no to patriarchy. Like, there's a lot about it that truly is. I mean, there's 1989 was interesting because her fan base had grown so much. And so her latest re-record, I feel like you saw more of people like, I actually prefer certain things about the previous version than I think we had in the past just because more people are aware but most people will say I I may have preferred the previous version I'm not going to stream it anymore I'm not going to give any more money to that and the fact that people are making that choice in a time where very few people actually like put their money with their values to be honest with you um it says a lot about an artist and a a person with business sense and the storytelling that she's been able to do for so many people to say, I'm not going to actually, I get offended <laughs> about seeing the stolen version places. I'm like, what are you doing with that? Ooh, take that off the playlist. <laughs> um, and I think so many people feel like that because they're like, I'm aware of the story behind this. And so I just think there's something about the reality of her taking that risk, telling the story well. It cannot be overstated the fact that this is pretty monumental that she was able and willing to take that risk on herself for the sake of herself and her art. And I think there's something like really valuable about that, that it's worth remembering she had no idea in some ways, what the result would be. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up because other bands and artists have tried to do that in the past and it typically hasn't worked because people already own it. They've already made some kind of investment in it and they don't want to spend the money twice and we're just creatures of habit and we're just used to, I already have this album in my car or you know, I already have it on my phone. So I'm just going to keep listening to that one. And Yeah, so it was very much a gamble. And this is, again, what I thought was special about Kelly Clarkson is Kelly may not have been the first person to suggest it. And maybe Taylor was already thinking about it for all we know. But for Kelly to be someone who's respected in the industry and has a high profile and has a big following, for her to publicly say, hey, Taylor, I think this would be a good idea. That is actually the most important thing it's not even necessarily the idea itself or whether it was original to kelly it's kelly publicly co-signing it and her also kind of putting her name on the line in a way to say this is something that you should do i think this is a good idea i would support it and that's such a lovely example of women supporting women of especially women in the industry supporting each other you know kelly was around the pop country scene lived in nashville when Taylor would have been younger and I'm sure listened to her music and looked up to her. Kelly Clarkson is also just a really nice person. (laughs) Um, So yeah, just for, again, for someone else to publicly support the idea was a huge move. And I think that makes a big difference. So it wasn't just Taylor saying like, Hey guys, I'm going to do this and you can all interpret it as a big money grab if you want to, but for a third party to say, this is a good idea. I think that, creates a different level of almost like neutrality 
around it that was really important and really beneficial. Yeah, that's such a good point. So we talked about how they sound a little bit different and that can feel like strange to people, but there's mostly been like a really emotional, precious response to that of hearing songs that were sung by someone in their late teens and early 20s now being re-recorded by someone in their 30s. Um, And I think it's kind of, it honestly is pretty wild to like have that experience of listening to a song and then saying, oh my gosh, the adult version. And for many of us who listen to the songs as they came out, it's a really powerful moment of having both those memories and the nostalgia of it, but also that moment of ourselves having grown up and matured and having this kind of new experience with it and thinking, oh my gosh, what would it have been like to hear this song from the vault in that moment or something like that? I think it's it's so interesting to see how her embracing that has invited people on a journey of like their own process of what maturity has looked like in their own lives. Mm-hmm. It really has been a rare collective moment of reflection and marking the passage of time, which is that's healthy to do always, you know, and that's healthy to do throughout one's life at pretty regular intervals to think about, okay, how have I been growing? What's been happening? How's that been affecting me? Where did I used to be? Where am I today? That's Those are good and healthy things in general. And, but we usually just kind of do those on our own or perhaps with some family members or a trusted friend. But for us to kind of do that on a collective level, I don't know of any other time <laughs> in the same way that that's happened. Where yeah, just hundreds of thousands, millions of people at the same moment, listening to a Taylor's version, a new version, we're hearing the same song that she wrote when she was a teenager sang in a voice that sounds like a teenager that was perhaps not quite as strong, not quite as controlled. And now we hear it in her mature thirties voice that is a little stronger, that is more controlled, that matches her personal maturity. And that makes us all realize, wow, I'm not in the same place that I was when I first heard that song. And it makes me feel hope and encouragement to think about Taylor's not there anymore. She's grown. She's stronger. She's in a more solid place. And I am too. And that's a really beautiful thing to mark and celebrate. And that like, we all know what she's been through in the interval. And so for her to sing songs about suffering and struggle and betrayal, and we all know exactly what that was. And then for her to sing it now, and all of us knowing that she's in a better place makes us remember like, gosh, I've been through a lot too in my life. I've had ups and downs that I really related to those songs. And now I get to think about how I'm in a more stable place as well. And I feel more strength of self. And so that's partly why the re-recordings have been so resonant for people. It is just supporting Taylor, but it's so much deeper than that. And I also think people have been so willing to stop streaming the old versions and only stream Taylor's versions because again, we feel like she cares about us 
and that she's gone to great lengths to make fans feel supported and cared for. And so for us, we're like, okay, yeah, that's the least that we can do for you in return. But it feels like a very mutual connection with her. And I think that's why fans are willing to sacrifice is kind of a strong word, but, you know, make changes to change our routines, to change our habits, to spend new money on a new album instead of just continuing to listen to the old version that's six years old sitting in your car (laughs) to replace it with something new is something that is unique because we're like, we would do anything for her because we feel like she, she would do anything for us. And we feel like we're in it together, which again is a beautiful picture of the church and Christianity. Like that's what Jesus offers us, (laughs) that Jesus offers us far more than Taylor Swift, to be clear. Um, true sacrifice and love and selflessness and that that is meant to spur that on in us as Christ followers, that we respond to a leader who is selfless and caring. And then we are meant to create a community that reflects that. And I just think it's really interesting that the Swifty community in many ways reflects more concepts of Christ than sometimes the church does. And I think that can be an opportunity for reflection and conviction within the church. Um, And again, Taylor is not Jesus. Obviously Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, but yeah, the, like a lot of ways that Taylor is doing something that the church isn't and ought to be. And that is a chance for us to maybe reorganize our priorities. Yeah, that's so good. I think specifically around this idea of like reflection of our journeys and the ways in which that really should be a part of our lives. And yet I think most of us would say outside of like maybe a new year or something like that, it takes a pretty significant milestone, which for women are typically like marriage and kids for people to encourage like reflection on your life and celebration of where you're at in your journey. And we don't normalize just doing that of like, yeah, actually you did make it through that betrayal. Like great praise God. And so I think there's something about the reality of us having these opportunities to reflect in ways that are not oriented around a particular milestone that someone else has decided is valuable but around our own experiences of our journeys and just being able to celebrate like yeah I kind of thought that breakup would destroy me and yet here I am like on the other side of it and that's a you know we can listen to Taylor sing that and feel like wow that was really meant something to me eight years ago and it means something to me right now too and I think For us to think about what are the ways in which we want to create more and more opportunities for each other to do that, not based on someone else's, you know, milestone of what they believe is valuable, but around a reality of like, wow, you've, you've made it through a season that was really hard, or you made a really big move and that's really significant or like whatever it is. But these things that we have been able to reflect on, I think show us how valuable that can be and the fact that we don't create enough space for it in our normal lives. That's such a good point. 
yeah, that it's unique in a way that it shouldn't have to be, <laughs> that it should be, yeah, part of our routine. And I, again, I think that's what's important about Taylor is that she has normalized having emotions and feeling things strongly and telling the truth about the complexity of life for women and then giving us a chance to be present with our emotions and be reflective on what we're going through in the moment and then also a chance to look back on how far we've come since that moment in time and those are all such beautiful important things perhaps part of why in general, Taylor Swift listeners tend to have the highest levels of mental health <laughs> and the highest levels of happiness and optimism is because actually like many of her songs are deeply sad. Um, you could say depressing. And yet it, because they're cathartic in important ways, I actually think they allow us to, like I said, express our emotions, be present, put language put really beautiful language around our emotions. And I, I think that shouldn't be diminished. The way in which beautiful language gives validity and elevates our feelings that we don't feel like we have to dismiss them. To have something poetic said about the way that you feel gives it just a sense of weight and a sense of, of meaning and truth. And that's a, that's a really beautiful gift that we can offer to each other to to give each other words and beautiful words about what we're experiencing. Mm, so well said. Yeah. As you were talking, I was just thinking about like, no one has experienced it on the level of Taylor. And yet anytime one of us has had our own ideas stolen in a meeting or someone else takes credit for, you know, your own work, I think there's something powerful about us being able to say, Number one, it's okay for me to feel emotion about that. And number two, no, that that was mine. That's my work that you are taking credit for. And I think, um, yeah, for us to just be able to, like you said, name that and validate our own experiences in a way that I think she has normalized and actually what, like we talked about last week, is so provoking to patriarchy and the way that we have internalized that and been taught to think less of that and so I think there's something about us being able to resist that that's very powerful even in you know as we are having someone else put language to it being able to say that that is true and resonant about our own lives there's something really significant about that mm -hmm. yeah that's so beautiful yeah a couple song recommendations if that's you and you need to work it out uh, her song, My Tears Ricochet, is largely about leaving her record label. Also, her song, The Last Great American Dynasty, just has some wonderful carelessness around the system that is really helpful, where she talks about being the loudest woman this town has ever seen, and where she uses the line I quoted earlier, I had a marvelous time ruining everything. And when it comes to like ruining systems that should be torn down and dismantled, and not feeling guilty about that, not feeling guilt or regret or like, oh, I don't know, I'm, now I'm worried, what will people think? She's like, I had a marvelous time ruining everything. <laughs> There's something very freeing about that sentiment and that idea. So that brings us to, we want to talk about the Eros tour, because so much of it is, again, the fruit of 
the connections that she's built over time, the way the fan base has grown, the way that her catalog has grown and the impact of Taylor's versions of her re-recordings. Cause really the Taylor's versions, just the story behind them. And then the actual re-recordings have been yet another significant uh, component for growing the fan base that I think a lot of new people have found her music as a result of the re-recordings because it was empowering, because it was interesting, because it allowed them to maybe revisit an album that they had overlooked at the time or dismissed at the time, or maybe were too young for at the time and never had somebody else bring it to them. And so the fan base has largely grown as a result of all of those things, culminating in the Eros tour, just being an absolute phenomenon this summer. And for those of us who fought the great war, we're in the trenches with Ticketmaster. We salute each other. <laughs> it was brutal out here. Um, many of us didn't get to go. Some of us did. Some of us have yet to go and have tickets for 2024, which is very exciting. But it was in, for a lot of people, you know, like the event of the year and for a lot of people, the event of a lifetime and just had insane records broken. Every single stadium she was at, it was always a record number of people in attendance. Usually nobody had sold out those stadiums on back-to-back -back nights. And she played everywhere in the U.S. at least three nights. Some, And in some cities, like in L.A., she did five nights in a row, completely sold out. 70,000 people, five nights in a row. That's bananas. Like, that's truly insane. And that means there's still plenty of people that didn't get tickets who would have wanted to be there. And in cities where the stadiums allowed it, there would be still like 20,000 people outside the stadium because they just wanted to be around. They wanted to hear whatever they could. They would sing along outside the stadium. They would just vibe and have their own community experience outside the stadium. And it was just this massive nationwide thing that also then grew on TikTok. People would watch grainy live streams. There's such a joke within the fan base about watching a grainy live stream <laughs> on, on TikTok or other platforms. And you would see people's videos later. And it just became such a massive cultural moment and this feeling of a shared experience that people got to experience in person at the time, but then share with others online afterwards. Yeah, I think the community experience just really cannot be overemphasized. I was one of the ones who lost the war, at least in that <laughs> round. And so I tailgated um, <laughs> and sat outside of the stadium um, when she was in my city and Honestly, it was like a very fun experience and to see the way that people were responding. And I remember looking at this young, young woman near me and just thinking like, I, I know that you just had such a cathartic experience just now. Like you saved yourself about three therapy sessions. That was incredible to just like be in the vicinity of and she wasn't even in the stadium just outside having a cathartic experience and I think there's something very beautiful about like being able to say really this was our first 
summer after COVID where people felt like it was safe to be in settings like that and to say, honestly, like a culture needed to heal and have community experiences again. And I think in some ways we are relearning what that looks like for us to have real communal expressions. And I think the Eras tour and uh, Beyonce's tour as well were very significant moments in that of people coming together and having this community experience, having um, all of the elements of it as well of like their outfits and having the online experience and just all of the layers that were involved in it that I think created this expression that for many people was its own very powerful experience of having the fact that it was shared, that it was not just, you know, being in a stadium, seeing an artist, but that it was a shared experience. Absolutely. And that's something, so I got to go to the reputation tour back in 2018. That was my first time seeing her live. And I, I have been a concert girly for a long time. I was, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I was very into punk rock, emo, anything alternative. I lived for going to shows. I was a scene kid. So I've been to more concerts than I can count or remember. And the Reputation Tour was truly the best concert I had been to up until that point, because it was just an insane shared experience. Really, it was like a dashboard confessional concert on steroids. Shout out to all my millennial emo kids. I've been to, I think, two or three dashboard confessional shows and everyone sings along at the top of their lungs and just unleashes all their angst. And it's great. And everyone knows all the words and it's great. And so that was what I had experienced. And then go to Nissan Stadium in Nashville and it's that times, I don't even know how many, a <laughs> hundred probably, you know, it's like 65,000 people at that time. And it's wild because you're all just like, holy cow, there are a ton of people here that are a huge cross-section of America, ages, just professions, places in life. And we are all united around this person and this music. And, and again, especially the music and that it's just as much about being there with other people as it is about seeing her. And I, again, I think that's something that Taylor has intentionally fostered and values that she's not threatened by that. She's not like, uh, hello, I'm the one who's the center of attention. Everybody all eyes on me. She's always elevating the crowd. She's always hyping up the crowd and how much people are into it. She's always just giving appreciation and gratitude to the fans of acknowledging people come for each other just as much as they come for me. And at the end of her Eras tour movie, during the credits, it's all clips of fans and their fun outfits and all the ways that they got into it. Um, and so like it, people come for each other and because Taylor makes us feel like we're part of something and we're cared for, she plays insane rain shows that any other artist would cancel because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to have to go through the, the struggle of being soaking wet and having their equipment ruined. But she's played in like crazy rain shows. She in Nashville. So I'm going to flex for a second. I got to see her in Nashville night one 
which was the Speak Now, Taylor's version announcement. So I was there live for it and I called it. I am never letting anyone forget that going into the show, I was like, I think she's announcing Speak Now tonight. And then she did. But then I think the third night in Nashville, there was lightning. And so she had a major delay. She didn't start until 1030. And there's a curfew in the city and she had to pay a fine for a noise violation for going later um, past the curfew. And so she like paid out of her own pocket to play the show anyway. And plenty of people would be like, ah, you should have just canceled that. What's the big deal? But Taylor knew like people came here, people rearranged their lives. People moved mountains to come to this show. And if they don't, if she's, she knew if I don't play the show tonight, some people are just never going to see it. And so she's so selfless. You could say it's about the money. I know it's not about the money that she's like, this is for the fans because they have given their all to be here and I'm going to play for them no matter what, even if we have to wait for hours and play till one 30 in the morning. <laughs> and that's what makes people care is because she's going to go the extra mile for us. And so we are all willing to do that with her. And again, it just feels deeply mutual. Yeah. I mean, most people also wouldn't want to sit in the rain for that long. <laughs> like it takes a very special show to be like, actually, this is worth me sitting in the rain for hours, sheltering in place when there was lightning and all of the layers of it. And so I think there's something to be said on like all sides of it, that people feel that compelled to be at this experience. Um, and I think there's something, of course, there were men there. I'm not diminishing that. And also there was something, we talked about this in our fashion episode as well, but there's something so unapologetically feminine about the tour that I think was part of the communal experience. And it was almost like, yeah, boys, like you can sit here, men can come, but this is like for the girls really. <laughs> and, um, and I think we just don't have spaces in culture where it's so unapologetically feminine and where like you think about your outfit, not in the sense of like, will someone judge this or will this be accepted here or something like that? But like, how can I have the most fun with my clothing and how can I celebrate, you know, this experience in the most like optimum way. And I think we just really can say there's very few experiences where that is the case and where that's such a celebrated aspect of things where it's a space for women to really celebrate with one another. even I mean if you think about all the scenes of like TikToks that I saw over the summer of people saying hey I got this really cool scene of like a mom and a daughter singing along to this everyone finder like I, I didn't get to send this to her or people recording people's engagements or something like that like there was something about the experience that actually drew people together that they would see something beautiful happening in their midst that they would say like I want to capture this and do my very best to make sure that this person sees that I was able to like celebrate what they were experiencing as well and I think I can't think of another experience like that 
Yes. Which I think brings us to, we have some thoughts that we want to share on what can the church learn from the Eras tour? Because it's again, embodying so many things that the church is made to embody. It is people who are coming, who might have nothing else in common except that shared interest. That's the church. <laughs> That's It's uniting a wide range of people who would never be in the same room together if it wasn't for Jesus. That's what the church is meant to be. Who are there with loved ones, who are there with friends, who are there with children, who are there with parents and sisters, um, who are there who want to make connections with strangers. That is also so unique that you're not just going for yourself. You're going with people you already know, and you're hoping and expecting to make new friends and new connections as well. That's such a beautiful element of church um, that at the Eras tour, as well as in the church, they all know the words and the liturgy. There's a shared understanding of, of the content that we all get to participate in. And we all feel like we're in the know um, and that we all have a sense of belonging and we leave feeling uplifted and that it's intergenerational. You know, like all of that, of what the Eras tour was able to create are things that were originally like invented by the church. And so some things that we just wanted to unpack further about that, that idea of everyone knowing the liturgy of the concert, there were literally call and response moments throughout the show of at this point in the show, we all know that we're all going to scream this. <laughs> Um, at very key moments, sometimes so loud that people could hear it blocks away <laughs> outside of the stadiums, sometimes across the river, <laughs> you could still hear people shouting and that's really fun. Um, but also not just knowing the liturgy and a call and response, but knowing what would be like a pop culture term right now is lore, knowing the lore behind something of what's the backstory, what's the universe that this is existing within. And Swifties know the lore of Taylor Swift. We all know her personal story. We all know what her parents look like. We all know, of course, the people that she's dated, but we know the places that she's lived. We know everything she's been through with her album, with her label, all of this stuff. We know everything about her. And so we know everything that's behind every single song that she's written. That is I think such an interesting and powerful layer that makes people feel invested is they know the lore. And as new fans are joining the fandom, that's a big part of the conversation is they're all saying like, catch me up. I need to know the backstory of all this stuff. And it's something that's compelling that people want to know and understand. And it gives them a deeper appreciation for the music and the fan base. And I think that's a really important lesson for the church is I don't know that we're always that good at telling our own story and telling our own lore, if you will, of like the full narrative of scripture. We have been pretty guilty of just doing devotionals essentially in the church where we just pull out little verses that make us feel good or that illustrate a point. And we're not very good at telling an overarching narrative. And that's something that Taylor Swift has done exceptionally well, and that has made people be deeply invested because they know the overarching narrative. And I think that's a really interesting learning point for the church is how can we do a better job of telling our, our whole story in a way that helps people understand, oh, this is the, the basis of that. This is the underpinning of that. 
Taylor will have songs that relate across different albums that kind of harken back to four albums ago. She'll have a lyric that is drawing from another lyric. The Bible does that. <laughs> the Bible invented that. Across, it's called cross-referencing. <laughs> um, and so there's so much that Taylor's doing, obviously, on a less universal level, less um, cosmic level, but that we should be the best at in the church. We have like the full knowledge of all of humanity in the church. And if we actually tapped into that to the full extent, then that just giving people such a strong foundation and something that they want to be part of and something that they want to learn more about. Yeah, I think people have used this in really negative ways to say like, oh, Taylor's an idol. Um, I'm sure someone will have that opinion about this episode. Um, but I think more than that, it says so much about the reality that we are hungry for a story that we can find ourselves in and that we've not always done a good job as the church saying we actually all do have that story. We actually do have a story where there's a place for us, where we can find um, our narrative that feels like home. And so I think there's something for us about telling our story better and also kind of this affirmation of, yeah, we do all have a, a longing for this story that we can be a part of and find our place in. And I think there's an affirmation in that of that's a good and right feeling to have. We are designed for that. And there's an even bigger story for us to find our place in. And there's such a, a rich and beautiful invitation for us in like our invitation to tell that story as well. And I think for me, as someone who is often overwhelmed by that idea of like, there's so much to tell, how do we, we work with college students and we have like a, a timeline of when students will graduate. And there can be this element of like, how do I fit so much in? And it, there's just a reminder of like, when we tell a story well, we can't get enough of it. And so there's something for us in being familiar enough with the story and finding, you know, maybe for some people, this will be like an inspiration to say, I actually maybe need an additional translation that makes this story sound more like a story so that I can find my place in it a little bit better and um, figure out like what it is that I need to to draw myself into the story of God in a different way. And I would say like, you should do that if that feels compelling to you. Um, right now I'm really liking the, um, a translation of the new Testament put out by IVP that is written by indigenous scholars. And so you'll find names of people and places that are for their name's sake in the same way that indigenous people would have it. And so uh, it helps me find my narrative of those places and spaces in a different kind of way. So I would say like, we, we often feel like, uh, 
how am I ever supposed to know all of that? Or these stories, there's so much there. And there's, there's something about the narratives of these albums and, and things like that, that there's a community experience about it that I think we can take into other aspects of our lives and say, it actually is really fun to get caught up in a story with other people. And I want to do that in a way that is maybe um, new and refreshing. I love that you explain that so eloquently. Exactly. And yeah, and other things that you already alluded to, Jamie, but this idea of it being a space that's non-judgmental and celebratory. That's such, who doesn't want to be part of that? <laughs> a space where people aren't judging you based on how you look or even like, do you know the words or not? Like, that's fine. We're glad you're here. And that people are just hyping each other up and celebrating each other of course, complimenting each other's outfits, which I also do at church. I compliment people's outfits all the time. <laughs> Feel free to also do that at church. Um, but yeah, just this place that is very positive, very upbeat, very encouraging of we're all glad that we're all here together. We want to celebrate that we're all here together and whatever each person is bringing in, whether they're dressed to the nines and in a really elaborate outfit or they're just in normal street clothes, <laughs> then it's still good that you're here. That's a beautiful space to invite people into. Yeah, I, because I think what also happens is, honestly, back to our episode with Caitlin Beatty, women have like a very particular way that they can look in order to like gain status in the church sometimes. And so I think to be able to say like, it's not a fashion show here. And also like, I appreciate that you put thought into your outfit and that that was fun for you. But for the other person to my right, like if you didn't, that's okay too. And um, for us to not kind of have like particular boundaries around that, I think can be such a good, a good lesson for us. Yeah. So good. Yeah. And then as we talked about early on that, uh, the Eras Tour takes place both online and in person and is quite a seamless combination of the two. It's so interesting that in some ways people vicariously live through the TikToks if they weren't able to go to the show in person, but that's only because they wanted to be there in person and couldn't be. I don't think there's anybody that's like, oh, I don't need to go because I already saw it on TikTok. No one, I guarantee no Swifty says that. They just are so hungry for any related content that they'll watch it on TikTok, but they would rather be there in person. And I think that is probably a pretty good goal for the church that online is a little bit of a last resort for folks that can't be there in person. We always want to make that available and that online engagement is enhancing the experience that you get in person and vice versa, that then the experience you get in person is fueling online engagement as well. Because in our modern age, we all live in person and we live online. That's just a reality. And so I think the Eras Tour has done such an interesting job and the fan base has done such an interesting job of these things are intertwined. One is not kind of dominating the other. Online isn't replacing in person. They're just enhancing both experiences and are fueling deeper engagement on every level. That's also the goal. It's not just like 
for the sake of getting likes. It's not just for the sake of clout, if you will. It really is fueling genuine connection and interest and wanting to share it with other people. Yeah, I think that's so good. And the fact that, again, people want to talk about what they experienced. And so I think for us to consider whether or not that's the reality of a church experience, not because it has to be like this dopamine high, but because it should be a compelling story. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And related to that, the Eras Tour, part of its power was it delivered something high quality and thoughtful. It was very well thought out. Taylor, you know, chose the set list really carefully. The secret songs and throughout the tour just created such another level of connection and interest and making people feel seen that even if their favorite song wasn't actually in the set, they could hope that maybe it would be played that night or every night on the Grainy live stream. <laughs> we would hope for one of our favorite songs to be played. And so it was just the th- the tour was well thought out. It actually was somewhat modestly produced in terms of the cost that, of course, a major tour like that is going to be very expensive. But part of why it was quite lucrative is because the set was pretty versatile and relatively simple, which I think the, the church should strive to be. I, I think your point, Jamie, is we're not just trying to be the, the best show in town and the most flashy. We're trying to do something that is substantive and thoughtful and resonates with people and meets the needs that they have and makes them feel seen and included. And that's something that the Eras Tour just did really well. And sometimes in church, I think we can phone it in, to be honest. I think that we can get kind of laid back about like, this doesn't really have to be that high quality. And again, it's not just, it's not just a product. It's, we're not just delivering something shiny, but we can honor the Lord with the excellence and just the attention that we put into communicating the gospel into worship, into a, a, a user experience, if you will, of what do people experience when they walk into the parking lot in the building, when they're navigating the space, how are we creating spaces that make people feel included, that are removing barriers for people that are helping them feel like they're part of something and that make them feel like they have something to offer as well in return. They're not just being consumers. That's the thing, like in the Eras tour, yeah, we're consuming music, but everyone feels like they want to put their content online so other people can see it. Like we all feel like we're kind of taking care of each other and that we all have a role to play. And even with streaming her music, we all feel like I'm going to do my part. I'm going to stream it on repeat on my device. So we get it to number one, you know, like that's a, a, a pretty trivial goal, but that's something that's so important in the church is for people to feel like it matters that I'm here and I can have an impact on this place and on what other people experience too. And that's something that Taylor has done. She creates a communal mutual space where people feel like it matters that they're there, that they are seen and valued for being there and that they have something to offer in return. Yeah, I think that's such a good point about like consumer versus participant and that experience even of like, I wanna sit outside of a stadium because I will have a communal experience. Everyone will be singing along. It will feel like I'm at a concert, 
even though I'm not. And I think to have that experience of like, that's, there's actually very little to consume there. We got like glimpses of the bracelets changing from outside. Um, and you could hear the stadium, but honestly, you could hear other people more than you could hear the artist. And so I think that invitation of like, how are we, I would say that's what is so different about this experience versus like an online church experience is having that kind of participant experience versus a real consumer, like one facing, you know, I I'm done with this whenever I click off of it and don't think much about it afterwards. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's such a good uh, contrast of like, am I, I'm actually not just consuming this content and how can I create something where people are having an engaging experience with an online church presence. Mm -hmm. And yet again, that it's giving women a sense of having a meaningful role to play. That women don't feel sidelined. Women don't feel like an afterthought. Like we said, for our, for our presence to be celebrated <laughs> happens very rarely in the church. I mean, Taylor Swift literally has a lyric that says, I know my love should be celebrated, but you tolerate it. And how often do women feel just tolerated in the church and not celebrated when we show up and not celebrated when we contribute or volunteer for something or even post something on our socials, you know, whatever it might be. And that is such a unique thing that Taylor is offering that is having these massive ripple effects for the economy, for her own career, that it really has been a year and a summer of highlighting this is the power of what women can do. And it's not just for the lulls. It's not just for fun. It's not silly. It's literally perhaps preventing a recession. <laughs> it's literally preventing mental health struggles. It's making people come out of isolation. It's making people actually connect with others. It's getting people out of their homes and their rooms and just staying in a cubicle. It's making people be part of something and participate in society. That's so powerful that Taylor's doing that for a, a wide range of people, but especially for women in ways that are pretty unprecedented. And I think, like we've said, inviting other women to like find their place in that story, inviting women to say, I, I want to think about what it looks like to have my own place in this and to take my own power back. And, um, I think that in and of itself is so powerful. And like we've said so many times, women are, it's often overlooked or, you know, like you said, tolerated, like it's fine if you show up. I feel like Taylor Swift has a male audience, but she's never like apologized for appealing to women so much. And that's never felt like less than to her and certainly not to the male artists that she's partnered with. And um, again, not to like use that as looking for the male gaze, but I think to be able to say it is powerful because women are powerful and it's not to be overlooked. And it is something that is meaningful because it is creating a space for women to celebrate and, and find their place in it as well. 
So good. So all in all of this, we hope that we are clearly communicating that we should not underestimate the power of women to create shared experiences, to make people feel connected, to feel a sense of belonging, to feel a sense of purpose, and that that is a really good and beautiful gift to one another and to culture and to the world and to the church. And that when we do that, we're meeting a need that people are longing for in our society. We have learned so clearly this summer that people want to be part of something. People will go to something. They will leave their homes <laughs> to be part of something that feels meaningful, that feels inclusive, and that they can contribute to. And so that is a really beautiful, hopeful sign for the church. We, again, were designed to offer that for, for all time. And so this is really beautiful and encouraging stuff for us in the church to observe, to see, to celebrate, and to have the humility to learn from as well. This is not an anomaly that's just around the Eras tour. This is the longing of the human heart to experience connection. We are created to be communal, to be, to belong. Um, and so this doesn't just stop with the Eras tour. We have so much opportunity in the church to keep building on that. And so let's appreciate how skilled Taylor is in this area and learn from the best as we desire to make the gospel come to life for new generations. We are so thankful that you've chosen to listen and connect with us and be part of something with us. We are always so thankful in the Excavate community for the ways that you engage with us. We always want to hear from you. If you have reactions or thoughts to our episodes, please do find us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook. We would love for you to follow the show so you get notifications wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a Patreon community. We have merch that we would love to have you rep in your area. And for this episode up until Taylor's birthday on December 13th, we are doing a giveaway. If you share Excavate content and an episode to any of your social media, you can enter to win a physical copy of 1989 Taylor's version, either CD or vinyl. So please do participate, share the show, and hopefully win something that is now Taylor's. Thank you so much for digging in with us today.